Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Bobby Loveless. And I'm Danielle. Hey, everybody, it's an all-Hellboy podcast. We're reading all the Hellboy comics, and every week we interact with our awesome listeners, and now Danielle's going to tell you all about it. No, Niklas is going to tell you all about it. Okay, this is a book club about Hellboy, and BRPT, and Witchfinder, and Ape Sapiens, and whatever... <laughs> Whatever else they, they, they are printing uh, next. And we are here to talk about the Witchfinder and the Hellboy stuff. Mostly about the Hellboy stuff, I myself. But if you enjoy this, this is nice. This is nice. This book club is nice. So join in and have some fun and talking about some nice comics. Back to you, uh, yes, thank you. That was, <laughs> that was awesome. Great. You went right to it. That was great. No hesitation. Yeah. I'm, in, I'm, I'm impressed. That was good. Hey, it's Niklas. Niklas. Book club member. Book club member. Yeah, that's another clip from our debriefing episode. Go back and check that out if you missed it. We had an awesome interview with all of our friends all over the world, which was great. And it was so great to talk to Niklas. And it was uh, it was his birthday recently, too, if I remember correctly. Oh, happy birthday. birthday. Yeah, that's awesome. We've been pumping Matt Strackbine and Ross Radke's upcoming Kickstarter for Milagro, which looks so amazing. We got an exclusive preview here in the podcast headquarters. Oh, man. I'm excited to see this thing come out. I mean, wow. (laughs) It's amazing. Ross Radke and Matt Strackbine is like the ultimate team up, I think, as far as like our little circle here goes. Good stuff. And these images are just incredible. I'm so excited for it's you guys to see this. It's full too, which is yeah. exciting. It's outstanding. Ross is really killing it on this series. So I can't wait for everyone to get excited. July 5th, this thing is going to kick you in the face or something. It's going to body slam you. <laughs> and you're going to give your money to the Kickstarter. And it's going to be so awesome. Go ahead and follow them on Twitter at Comic Milagro. We got another shouts out. We got another follow Friday from Ratchet Book Club. So thank you. That's awesome. Ratchet Book Club. Yeah. Great podcast also. And now we're going to go on to our listener feedback. Get out, trades and floppies. Get out, hardback copies. Digital is fine. Read along in time. We got a Hey You Damn Guys from Bob Gray. Bob Gray. Book club member. He said, I'm really enjoying the podcast. I have started at the beginning, so it will be a while until I'm current. But thank you for (laughs) making my ride to work a lot less hellish and a lot more hellboy. That's awesome. Awesome. That's great. Welcome to the book club. You're an honorary book club member. That's right. Uh, We also got a Hey You Damn Guys from Clayton Schofield. Clayton Schofield. Book club member. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Clayton said, Hey, damn guys. Love Minton Burrow's Hellboy. Maybe the right-handed doom could have been a little larger. Still a great issue. Uh, Martin Burrow worked on one of my favorite detective comic runs, 742 to 753-ish, uh, with Rucka, where they use a muted color palette. Looks stunning. Oh, I'd love to check that out. Martin Burrow has a really good style, I think, for Batman. That would be great. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to check that out as well. And we also heard from Matt Strackbine. Hey, Matt Strackbine. Hey, it's Matt Strackbine. We were just talking about him. Yeah, book club member. (laughs) July 5th. (laughs) 
Martin Burroughs' How to Draw Noir Comics, The Art and Technique of Visual Storytelling is one of my favorite instructional books. Hmm. Oh, nice. I didn't know that he had made like a, I guess like an art book or instructional. Yeah, I would love to check that out. Very cool. That'd be really cool. We also heard from Ryan Yule. Hey. Ryan Yule. Book club member. There was one panel in particular where I thought Martin Burroughs' Hellboy looked like Mignola's early style of drawing him. I wonder if it was done intentionally as a homage to Seed of Destruction. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, he did show me that panel. I should post it for our social media so you can check this out. Yeah. It's a they're both profile shots of Hellboy where he's like gritting his teeth. Sure. And there's a early Mignola seat of destruction next to the Martin Bro. They look really similar. Oh, okay. It's really cool. Yeah. We'll yes, talk about that a little bit more when we yeah. get to the sketchbook, probably I think. An, probably an homage. I don't know. Yeah. Ryan also said, in case you uh, aren't aware, Paulo Rivera sells the Occult Intelligence Issue 1 in 1955 trade covers as print on his site. And then he uh, included a link to the site. Oh, yeah, man. I have so many prints, though, but God, they're (laughs) gorgeous. Those Rivera covers are just beautiful. Yeah, I would love to get some of those. Yeah, they're stunning. (laughs) We also heard from Drew Campbell. Hey, Drew Campbell. Book club member. Yeah. He said, uh, so there's that one splash page where they Zhang has her vision in the last story. And he said he thought the silhouette in the middle of the page was supposed to be Vivara. There's like this weird shape. So I guess it could be Vivara like in the big demon form. I didn't think about that. Oh, okay. And the Blues Brothers guy looks like the British agent from Ghost Moon. That's <laughs> what I was thinking, too. Yeah. And we'll yeah. talk about that more with this. It does kind of have a Vivara silhouette to it now that I'm looking at it. Yeah. Okay. I totally didn't notice that. Yeah, good job, Drew. We also heard from Jerry Turnbull. Jerry Turnbull. Book club member. Indeed. He said, I like to think Chirilla's version of Lady Cynthia and Dee are a nod to husband and wife, Charles Lawton and Elsa Lanchester. Who are these damn guys? Uh, so they were actors. They were, um, yeah, no, they were a couple. Well, yeah, they I were both actors and they were married. Okay. And I think they were like in movies together well, because there's like cease. there's pictures of them together. That's fun. And they do look like Lady Cynthia and Dee. Wow, that's really cool. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, so that might be. What yeah, that they is. did look like them. That's fun. If you like the old the old black and whites. Yeah. The talkies. <laughs> there's a lot of that that Jerry points out where they're like, "Oh, this is Peter Cushing," and you're like, "Holy shit, it is!" Yeah. Right. Where they draw reference of that. I wonder if that's like a, when they reach out to the artist, they're like, oh, and, oh, and hey, if sure. there's an old 1940s, 1950s <laughs> actor that you like, please throw him in there. I wonder if that might just be the artist, though. But it's Being throughout like, all the artists, wouldn't it be fun? All of them do it. Yeah, but like, because yeah. it's fun. Wouldn't it be fun if, you know... Conchi I- Zanyich did it? Sure. Yeah. I, I feel like it's also common for artists to have something going on in the background while they work. So maybe they're watching a movie like, well, I need a couple for this. Here's a couple in a movie I'm watching. I'm going to put that but in there. But it's always like these old timey. I mean, it's not, not always old timey. Like I'm there sorry. was a X-23 trade I was reading where two of her teachers are the Mythbusters guys. Oh, right, are, right. Ad, Adam oh, wow. and Jamie. No, but I'm talking about specifically in Hellboy. Sure, exactly. But There's you know what I mean. There's a running theme where they're always like these old dudes right. from. It might, it might be the case that the the writer was saying hey wouldn't it be fun if we put these guys in there maybe you know reference these people when you're drawing these characters or it may also be like the artist is like maybe even has to ask from like hey is it cool if is this too much if i put this in or Mm. can i put this in or maybe they're putting it in hoping nobody notices or hoping someone does notice or something like that like i i I don't know how much communication would go on between any given writer artist combo but i imagine that some of it is just a very off the cuff right. kind of 
in the moment decision of like how to make these guys look like this actor that I like, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking like maybe it's because they're like using like older movies as photo references for the time period. Sure. Uh, because you know, yes. Because I mean that would be um, you know something that would be readily available to be able to use because you know there probably aren't like as many um, photos and uh, references like you would find for more modern stuff. Right, a thousand percent. Yeah. Like if you need. Yeah. How would someone have dressed or done their hair? It's just like, well, just got these actors that are in this movie yeah, of this yeah. time period. They might I as mean, well draw them too. Just draw them. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's Aubrey, great. that's great. You got it. <laughs> you got the goods. But don't they also have to be careful, like with likenesses, right? I mean, didn't um, sometimes? Yeah. I don't know if y'all remember this. Like back in the eighties, the Christian pop singer Amy Grant like sued Marvel because they used her likeness on a Doctor Strange wow. comic cover. For real? Oh, to, wow. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I remember a thing, it, it being a thing with like Samuel Jackson. Like, I think the, I don't want to accuse anyone, but I know that there were rumors that this particular artist had maybe traced Samuel Jackson's. Oh, Brian Hitch for the Ultimates, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he totally did. So, you know, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I mean uh, people who are longtime listeners of this know that I'm not really, you know, one, two, I don't want to outright accuse anyone of doing something like that, but I, you know, it's very obvious that that is literally Samuel Jackson. So then later, though, they were like, well, let's just cast him as Nick Fury and say that this was the plan the whole time. And then it ended up being fine because Samuel Jackson is, I guess, very chill with stuff like that. Well, but it could have been bad. I mean, if he had been like, hey, you're using literally my face. I, I actually just heard somebody right. talking about this. Now Marvel says with his permission. Yes, I, yeah. The, well, that's on Wikipedia. But that's that like was with retroactive. His, but that's exactly you know retroactively. I mean? They inserted that in there that he gave. He retroactively gave permission to be like, well, I'm playing Nick Fury in the movies now, so sure. I got this. Huge I can be in the comics of it. So. But I remember at the time that was kind of a thing. Like, this is okay. Is this on the up and up? Can we do that? Right, but then, like, it, right. it ended up being fine because he was cast as that character in the movies. But like, what are the odds that that's gonna you know happen? Like, I mean. But look at yeah. like, I guess it's exactly one because it did happen. But I mean, the it seems like that would be rare. So now is there a? I wonder now if that has become more common in the mainstream comics to be like, I'm gonna draw it to look kind of like whoever I because Angelina Jolie because I hope that she gets cast in this role. Like, yeah. I wonder if that's influencing who we're casting now because the people at Marvel are like, well, draw this person a little bit like this. We won't get in trouble for it because then we'll like cast them in a movie yeah, and they'll yeah, be excited sure. about it i don't know like i wonder how much of that is just i hope i don't get caught yeah and how much of that is like That's i hope really they cast this guy this is a good discussion well, I like you know this. how much well, trouble can I, you really get in for that you know from what i heard that uh uh using samuel jackson's likeness for nick fury and the ultimates was kind of like a fan casting kind of thing yes, they were like precisely uh, right that could be misremembering this, but I think I remember seeing an interview with him saying, like, when he found out, he was kind of annoyed, but he okay. was not pissed about it. <laughs> sure. Because he's yeah. being cool about it. I wonder, though, if you had someone who was like, that's not on. I don't appreciate this at all. Yeah. Could they pursue legal action? Like, you're using my likeness. Because, well, like, abs- in a lot of cases, their likeness. I'm looking at cover right That's what I'm saying. Like, in a lot of cases. I issue now. In a lot of cases, their likeness is almost all they have, like, to make money well, off of at cons it's like you got to pay money to get a signed photo of them and take a picture whatever it is like you can't just do all that because like they charge for that so that's what they're how they're making money so i wonder yeah. like if a case could be made legally to be like look you can't use my likeness in this comic book you owe me damages for that or whatever like that's just such an interesting thing how he didn't pursue that so maybe they were like here's an opening like maybe he'd be down with actually playing this role it's like when uh, back to the future uh two 
they didn't get the uh, the dad. I can't remember his name right now. <laughs> uh, who played the guy? You know, the actor who played the father. He wouldn't come back for your for part two and so they make they use makeup to make this one guy look like him oh, and he okay. sued the he sued the pants off Jeez. of him and he got he got like uh like rules changed in hollywood saying you can't just use an actor's likeness without permission that's so interesting wow that's super interesting uh carrie fisher like apparently had like sold her likeness rights to george lucas or the car uh, the company or whatever that he had and then like she didn't own the rights to her own likeness really? for a while because yeah and they could make whatever toy or anything that they wanted with her face on it and stuff like that or something i might be misremembering that oh. i i don't want to say for certain that that's literally what happened because i don't actually she, remember that she joked about it when at like his birth uh, george lucas's birthday party <laughs> roast kind of thing <laughs> oh wow yeah, Jeez. Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher was awesome. She didn't give a fuck. I'm glad that she, yeah, took that in stride. But I mean, that could easily be very like upsetting. Um, anyway, this is a very interesting topic, and there are so many different avenues we could explore. We probably will get back into that at some point. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, no, that's yeah. I like talking about this. That was <laughs> yeah, cool. very interesting stuff. Good job. Though. Uh, I wonder, like, what's the line between I used this person as a reference and this person outright flat out looks exactly like this person. Like, I wonder how yeah. far you can go. Like they right. have, you know, you, I feel like you can use someone as a model without actually making it that Obvious. person. Yeah. And yeah. so I wonder like, what's it like this kind of, this person kind of looks a little bit like, I don't know. Uh, I, it makes me think of like Alex Ross. Like, I mean, you go through any, any oh, Alex absolutely. Ross thing and you're like, Oh, there's fucking Timothy Dalton. <laughs> oh, there's fucking, you know, right. Linda Hamilton or whatever. Sure. You know I mean? I'm thinking of Marvel's, um, off the top of my head, but I mean, you know, I don't know. I've always thought that that was fucking awesome. I never thought that it would be a problem. Sure, I guess sure. you're absolutely right. And it kind of depends on yeah. the person, because if it was me, if Alex Ross was painting me as whoever, you right, know, name right. your superhero, I'd be like, that's fucking rad. You know, that's cool. I wonder if he goes out and gets permission or if he just paints it and then hopes they're chill with it and then hopes that Marvel's lawyers will protect him. I don't know. Like, that's he's because he's an artist. Like, that's fine art. Yeah. These paintings go for how many ever many tens of thousands of dollars. So it's well, kind of like he's the, making yeah. money yeah. off of. But is he making money off of the likenesses of these actors or is he making money off of the fact that it's in this book? Like a case could be made that for that kind of a thing. And so it's kind of like it's fascinating. That's fascinating. I'm sorry. I, sorry. I guess we went off on a huge tangent there. I'm so but uh, I don't know how much of that John's actually going to keep in, but. It is a fascinating yeah. topic. I'm sure it's not going to be the last time we talk about it yeah. either, but that's uh, that's interesting. The actor from Back to the Future was Crispin Glover, just so I can get it out. <laughs> oh, Crispin Glover. <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe none of us thought of that. We get some nerd points revoked for I sure. My brain, my brain completely shut off. <laughs> I've never seen the sequel to Back to the Future. What's it called? Uh, Back to the Future 2? You get more nerd points revoked for that. I don't care. Or, I don't or care. extra special nerd points, extra points for that. There you go. That's how much I don't give a Back shit. Back to the Future purists. I've only seen the first one. Got a Hey Damn Guys from Hayden Orr. Hayden Orr. Book club member. That's right. Hayden Orr says... Man, I particularly loved the set of stories in 1955. It's always interesting to see some real human dilemmas in this series, like issues of racism and discrimination, even though it's not something that's touched on super often. Brian Chirula's art is so awesome, even though it's stylistically different from my favorite Mignolaverse artist, Ben Stenbeck. I feel like I see many similarities. They both seem to have a strong grasp of form and figure, gesture, and expression. Ah. Yeah, you can always tell who a character is, even if a panel only has part of their body shown in it. 
He's a real cartoonist, I guess you could say, although I guess depending on who you ask, all comic artists would be cartoonists. Huh, interesting. I feel like animation right. is a specific, takes a specific skill set, and it's a specific way of looking at things. It's kind of like, I think some, their stuff would translate better to animation as opposed to some some people looks like they're directing a, a movie almost like it's which but i, I think, guess is in but i think sometimes cartooning is used interchangeably with like drawing like comics like yeah. cartoons in the sunday if you're any good at it yeah uh, regardless his art fucking rocks there you go something we can all agree on and i'm pretty sure he's working on a creator-owned project at the moment which i can't wait for but i would also love to see him on another hellboy story sometime in the future oh i'd love to see his creator-owned yeah stuff. so uh awesome. yeah check, check it awesome. out check out his creator-owned project maybe give it a googs google that and see i think he'd knock a lobster johnson story out of the park oh, okay right yeah, on that would be great We'd yeah. all, we all love to see more lobster johnson also, the Enkelidite. I'm really curious as to how they're going to eventually wrap this plot line up. It's so strange because as far as we know, it isn't inherently supernatural. More like just a scientific reaction we don't understand because of this odd extra-dimensional material. Makes me think of how uh, horror-slash-monster movies in the 50s started going for the science fiction atomic mutation angle over the gothic uh. type of horror. Like magic, I guess? Like, they're sort of using, like... Like science fiction horror as opposed yes. to like magical horror. Sure. Interesting. Very cool. Sometimes they kind of combine them, which I like. That can be fun. Uh, sorry, I, I literally interrupted this guy right in the middle of his email. <laughs> How horror monster movies in the 50s started going for the science fiction atomic mutation angle over the gothic type of horror popular in the 30s and 40s. I'm still of the mind that whatever dimension the Enkelidite comes from is the one the big good guy kaiju from hell on Earth broken equation is also from. Oh, right. There was like okay. a big Godzilla fight and like one of them was a good guy and one of them was... And sure. they were all, yeah, they were oh, all right. for the good one. That's typically how it goes. Right? So, so then in that universe, like there's... Good monsters and bad monsters. Well, quote unquote, good other. and bad. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about like monsters whose motives and actions align with what you consider to be beneficial to your society and your life. Yeah, they're good. And then the monsters that do stuff that are destructive or not in line with what you would want for your own life and society, sure. quote unquote, bad. Sure, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> we call stuff good I'm and so bad based on how they. No, no, no. I just mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's like. You know, anyway. Yes. So here we go. What am I talking about? <laughs> I also want to mention, I think it's very interesting that Segner feels so much guilt about all his dead squad mates from the past. Like he personally feels some responsibility for their deaths, which is something Hellboy deals with. The kind of guilt of a teammate's death, even though it isn't exactly your own fault. When he was younger, Hellboy looked up to Archie so much and took after him, but I think Hellboy also picked up a lot of personality traits from Stegner without realizing it. Oh, not, not okay, kind of, yeah. Okay. Not completely like Roger and Daimyo, but just enough to where I think it's noticeable. All right. I like right. that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we all do that uh, to some degree. I think we all, like when we're high school, we kind of take on each other's, yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, mannerisms and stuff of our friends and then maybe of our mother and or father if we happen to have a good right, relationship yeah. with them or whatever. And so I think that's just generally true of anyone in your life. You're going to kind of adopt one another's mannerisms over time and things like that. Well, I, I always think of uh, when we had Mark on, we were talking about Stegner, some episode that we had Mark on. I think it was when we did 1952. Mark said, uh, for all Stegner's gruffness... Mm. There is a panel in those 1940 series where he's holding little Hellboy by the hand. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so oh, there yeah. is like he a. He still part knows of how him. to interact with a yes, child in a exactly. in a loving manner. That's yes. Not, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
And, uh, you know, and sometimes that's people's personalities. Like, they might be, you know, whatever, gruff on the outside, but they still, in their own way, that's how they, you know, they love you. Right, yeah. Uh, regarding secret nature, Hayden said, I wonder if Strobel would be insulted that most of the people who use his book and actually think he's the real deal in the future are teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> I, little dorks, they find it out in the woods or I something. Feel like, I feel like that's the type of thing that would annoy someone like him. Lol. <laughs> oh, that's that makes great. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, he thinks he's going to leave it behind for like, and it's going to be the like future destroyer. And, and, sure, yeah, sure, sure. and it's going to be looked upon by and it's right. all these, these fucking kids who are like turning themselves hey, into hey, cows hey, hey, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's great. Mm, that's great. That's awesome. Good well, stuff. I always love to hear from you, Hayden Orr. Yes, that was great. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you, Hayden. We also heard from Edgar Sid. Hey, Edgar Sid. Book club member. Yeah. He said, on whether the crab in the beginning of occult intelligence is mutated or not, I'd say it's just a regular coconut crab, which is terrifying because those things look monstrous. That's what I'm saying. Is, like, is it probably just a regular crab? Like Crabs look like that sometimes. Yeah. He said there's even a theory that Amelia Earhart was eaten by a swarm of them. Oh, goodness. After crashing, which is a horrible thought. Well, it's not necessarily horrible. I mean, if she was, if she crashed and then died and then sea animals ate her body it's oh, kind okay. of a natural well, thing to happen that's not really it's too fine. bad when you say it like that sure but i don't know why that would be the theory like how would you know this i guess are there a lot of crabs in that area maybe yeah probably but sorry are we gonna say uh that's if she died on the crash she might have got she might have lived and then right. got eaten by crabs a lot of people who crash in water will like survive the initial impact but then drown because they cannot yeah because they're so injured they can't keep them mm. their heads above water and stuff wow. like that so anyway yeah. <laughs> That is grotesque. We don't and, talk about that anymore. <laughs> he also left another comment where he said, I'm sorry, I just, I couldn't help myself. You know, last week I made an error where I said Marshall Mathers instead of Michael oh, Mathers. Oh, no. A panel from The Visitor. Oh. And instead of the face in there, anyway, uh -oh. he replaced the face. It was pretty good. It was funny. Go, okay, so was go awesome. look at this meme. Go look at this meme created by our uh, a book club member at, uh, which which post is this? Uh, this is Edgar Sid on our, um, when I did the new episode post. Sure. On uh, Facebook or where? Yeah, on the Facebook. Okay, you on the Facebook. Because we get a lot of stuff on Instagram, Twitter, stuff like that, so. Yeah, I should share it in our Instagram stories. That would be great. If you want to see this meme. Yeah, it was it was pretty fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for all the discussion and the uh, and all the listener feedback this week. Yeah, fun stuff. All right, now we're going to go on to our book club episode for the week. Are we now? This week we're continuing our discussion of Hellboy and the BPRD 1955 stories with Burning Season. This is a one-shot that was published in February 2018, written by Mignola and Chris Robertson, illustrated by Paulo Rivera and inks by Joe Rivera, his dad. Oh, wow. Rivera, oh, cool. Yeah, Rivera has done some outstanding Hellboy covers. Um, he also did this cover. He also did the art for Hellboy and the BPRD Beyond the Fences, which we discussed back in episode 96, and it was really cool because... He got to do, like, the character models for Zhang and all these characters. Like, he kind of, like, introduced this 1950s world. He kind of kicked it off with those character models. So, um, And I love that Susan Zhang has come up so many times. Um, I think she's a great character, a great addition. And I think um, her her inclusion in these stories is um, very welcome Yeah, for, for me. I'm, I'm always excited to see her. 
And talking about an image that needs a print, I mean, this burning this season great. cover is, is incredible. Great. I love this. Yeah, it's a this yeah. is a really good um, illustration. I mean, it's really this is beautiful. You know, we're just talking about using uh, inspiration from actors. Like, doesn't Broom look like maybe like an old Leonardo DiCaprio or something? No? I disagree. I don't I know if these, the a facial little bit, structure yeah. is. I see, I see it in there. I don't the know. The facial structure is not similar to me. I think he has kind of a, a narrower face. That's the thing about this is I don't necessarily think of any actors when I look at these illustrations. I'm very impressed with whether or not he actually used actors for reference. I'm very impressed with the fact that they just look like, like a new person. Like you ever see those those uh computer generated images of people like this is not a real person? Oh, right. Yeah, and yeah. And it's like it looks like a real person. Like this looks like yeah. this looks like her. This looks like him. This looks like yeah. Broom, and it looks like Zhang, and it looks like uh, I can't think of any one person that this might be. It might be an amalgam of people, but I th- I feel like the features all seem to indicate to me that they're um, a unique person, which yeah, is yeah. very rare. I like that. I do see the Leonardo DiCaprio. Look <laughs> I don't know. That's just what I saw right it's there. It's a little bit in the eyes. Yeah, I but think I think so. other than that, I don't see much of it. What's going on here? I'm excited to see this, the story. Yeah, so Rivera, he really brings these characters I like this to a life. Lot. Yeah. Let's get a print of this cover. <laughs> we Good open stuff. in Port Orange, Florida. This is an actual city in Volusia County, Florida. It's part of the Deltona, Daytona, Ormond Beach metropolitan area. This couple, they're lost. It's in the 50s, so they're just looking at the map. And they're in a dinosaur swamp. Yeah, there's this weird dinosaur swamp. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more when we come back around to it. But basically, the guy goes to take a whiz while she's trying to find on the map. She says that they've been lost for over an hour. And all of a sudden, there's a scream and he turns around and she's just like on fire. This is super creepy. How it's grisly. And it pans over. I think it's so creepy and weird i love the pacing how it keeps panning over to these weird dinosaurs yeah it's yeah you know throughout these scenes and then we see like she's totally burnt to a crisp right there at the end very dynamic the way that the angles oh yeah swap in between it keeps the action moving and it's very um it's easy to follow but it's also it it makes you feel panic at the angle at which these are depicted i like that so far is the pacing the way the panels are laid out and they keep the way they keep jumping back to these dinosaurs. At first, I thought that she was attacked by dinosaurs. Sure, because, <laughs> right? Because I mean, this is a Hellboy comic. It so. does make you think that something's going on with those. And uh, yeah. I also like how we don't necessarily need to see all the gory detail right, to yeah. be horrified by this grisly thing that's happening. It's it's horrific enough without showing me any gruesome gore or anything like that it's i i'm very horrified by what's happening i don't need to actually see all that so i i appreciated that as well how the storytelling relied more on the storytelling itself right rather than you know kind of being like look at this gross thing we cut to hellboy professor broom agent jang and a local policeman investigating the scene a black burn crater where the body used to be broom says there's been a number of incidents involving fire in these woods and as Hellboy investigates, he's like, the heck? I love that panel right there. I love yeah. the lighting. Uh, Martin Burrow did that a lot, too, where he put Hellboy's face in shadow and like lit up the eyes. Yeah. Um, that's a cool effect. And he sees this dinosaur thing here again. I like how we have to qualify it by saying dinosaur thing. Because it's definitely not a fucking dinosaur <laughs> at all. It's, it's definitely a dinosaur thing. 
Yeah, these are the ruins of Bongo Land. I found a great article on RoadsideAmerica.com. Which we love. Bongo Land was owned by Perry Sperber, the first dermatologist in Daytona Beach. It was named for Bongo, a large baboon that lived there. So you see Hellboy oh, that says, my name is Bongo, official greeter. Mm, boo. A sign next to the Stegosaurus notes that the park closed, quote, for lack of public interest. Oh, jeez. The place is oh. now Sugar Mill Gardens, but from 1948 to 1952, it was Bongo Land, a theme park with a miniature train, a replica Seminole Village, and prehistoric monsters, quote-unquote, made by cement worker M.D. Manny Lawrence. Oh, my gosh. Out of concrete and chicken wire. Nice. And Good they job. look exactly like this. That's fun. Oh, like, that's that awesome. is not an exaggeration. Like, the Tyrannosaurus looks like that. <laughs> um, four of the monsters. Good job, though. Good job, man. I, I don't know when this article was written, but they don't uh, look like dinosaurs. But you know what? You worked hard on it. Yeah. And we appreciate that. Four of the monsters survive and are now protected as relics. Their paint is long gone. Their bodies are darkened with grime. Ooh. Apparently, the T Rex collapsed during a rainstorm in 2019 oh, so i don't gosh. think that's any longer there right. there were more creatures in the park however they live on forever in this yeah comic book. exactly exactly so you can actually go check that out um i would love I-, I don't know that i'd ever be driving through florida no but if i i don't <laughs> think we'll ever drive through there <laughs> but if i was i would definitely go check out bongo land john and i love to um go on road trips um, yeah, our road trips are going to come up again. Right. Uh, in so, the, in, well, we're in and this we are huge fans of of roadside stopping in and uh, you know hanging out with characters, local characters, and hearing stories and looking at a giant eight foot chicken that someone built out of oh, right. you yeah. know concrete in their backyard and whatever. We we love to do shit like that. All it's just like one of our favorite things to do. Stonehenge too. We love just go going check that to, out if you're ever driving through Texas. Yeah, I mean, obviously on our road trips we have actual like places we're getting to. Like we like to go to Big Bend or or we like to go to Marfa. We like to go to and you know see like actual things like the Chinati and whatever and the actual like the basin and stuff. But on the way there, one of our favorite things to do is stop and look at these weird things just just like this. So yeah. we are we're big fans of stuff like this. So the the setting. For this story is excellent. <laughs> I'm really psyched. So they start talking about spontaneous human combustion. That maybe that is what actually happened. They're talking about all these fire incidents that are happening out here. Broom is like, oh, well, that's exactly why I wanted you to come on this assignment with me. He says uh, spontaneous human combustion dates back to the 18th century. But there are legends going back centuries with similar features. While in medieval times, such deaths were attributed to demonic influence, more recently, some people think there's a medical cause. I did read about this a little bit. Uh, There's a whole Wikipedia about it. I mean, there is so much extensive research done, so I'm not going to go all into it, but it was covered in 1938 in a British medical journal, and it stated that there were all these commonalities between people that, quote-unquote, had spontaneous human combustion. They were all chronic alcoholics. They were usually elderly females. Hmm. Their bodies had not burned spontaneously, but some lighted substance had come into contact with it. Mm. Their hands and feet usually fall off. The fire has caused very little damage to combustible things in contact with the body. The combustion of the body left a residue or something. You know what I mean? And so, obviously, I mean, that's really gross. Um, But it said, uh, later, there was an extensive two-year research project... In 1984, by investigator 
Joe Nickel and Forensic Analysis John F. Fisher. Their lengthy two-part report was published in the International Association of Arson Investigators as well as part of a book. They concluded that burned bodies were often close to plausible sources for ignition. Such sources were often omitted from published accounts of these incidents, presumably to deepen the aura of mystery surrounding the apparent spontaneous death. The investigators also found that there was a correlation between these spontaneous human combustion deaths and the victim's intoxication, which could conceivably have caused them to be careless and unable to respond properly to an accident. So, I mean, if you're near something that could catch on fire and you're super drunk, you, you could catch sure. on fire and not, you know what yeah. I mean, and not be able to do anything about it. X-Files also uh, has pondered the idea of spontaneous combustion in uh, more than one episode, I believe. Oh, okay. I remember seeing something. They were talking about um, spontaneous human combustion, and they were like saying, like, how can the body burn without uh, burning anything else around it? And it talked about, like, well, it's because the body has so much fat in it. And uh, I think I heard the alcoholic thing, too. But to be honest with you, I, I'm skeptical that sure. people just suddenly ignite, but the whole thing, like there being um, close to heat sources, that makes that that makes sense to me. You know, well, that's interesting. You mentioned that, Aubrey. Um, they do talk about that, how everything burns, but what's around it. So they said the investigators described how such materials help to retain melted fat, which cause more of the body to be burned and destroyed, yielding still more liquefied fat in a cyclical process called the Wick effect. So basically, the body sure. like cr- is creating a wick. Right. That's really gross. To I wasn't even going to mention that. Sure, sure. But, but mean, like, it just gross. is burning in that one area, like a wick. I guess right. you know what I mean. Yeah. And it's not so. Anyway, that's another theory. Yeah. So yeah. The the Wikipedia um page on this is actually <laughs> full of information. If it's, you want to go check yes. any of that out, um. So yeah, if that is something you're interested in, you can read all about that. Well, Hellboy thinks all of this sounds a little fishy, and Zhang says, we're not alone here. And all of a sudden, holy shit, Professor Broom starts catching on fire. Ew. This scared the shit out of me. I like how they immediately like pull the jacket off of him. Right, because Hellboy is, he can do that. Yeah, there's some really cool stuff in the sketchbook where um, Rivera actually like posed in some of these... Oh, gosh. ...in some of these um, stances or whatever to capture... There's a lot of movement here, and it looks very natural. Like everybody here looks like the the movements that they're yeah. making are are very natural, which I love. And uh, Hellboy goes to stomp the the jacket out, and then it, it erupts in this huge flame Jeez. all of a sudden. It reminds me of the fire swamp in Princess Bride. Oh right, oh, right yeah. yeah. I love this panel where he's stomping out the fire. There's just something so cool about the way Rivera draws him. He does look like a little kid, kind of. Uh, yeah, a little bit. You know bit, what yeah. I mean? The way that he's stomping it out, he kind of looks like a 10, 11-year-old, sure. right? Yeah. So after that, you know, they kind of regroup. But Zhang says that she maybe thought it was like a haunting. Hellboy says, what if there's naturally occurring pockets of methane gas around this thing? And again, we cut to like the stegosaurus. Yeah. That, that kind of pacing, it kind of reminds me of Mignola's style too. Sure, yeah. Yeah. 
And the the officer gets back all late with the fire extinguisher, right? And he's very confused. What in the <laughs> Sam Hill happened here? Over at City Hall, Broom finds all the records of unexplained fire deaths dating back to the 19th century. I love when a City Hall is just a like a tiny one-story oh, yeah. <laughs> bungalow that looks like it might be four rooms. And Hellboy <laughs> and Jang are asking the other officers, have they heard of anything in the area that might lead to a haunting? Hellboy says... How about Will-O-The-Wisp, ghost lights, that kind of thing. Will-O-The-Wisps is an atmospheric ghost light seen by travelers at night, especially over bogs, swamps, or marshes. The phenomenon is known in English folklore and much of European folklore by a variety of names, including Jack-O-Lantern, Friar-Lantern, Hinky Punk. That's kind of like Hinky Pink. Yeah. When you, or Hinkle Pink, that's what you had said. Um, and Hobby Lantern, which is said to mislead travelers by resembling a flickered lamp or lantern. In literature, Will-O-The-Wisps metaphorically refer to a hope or goal that leads one on but is impossible to reach or something one finds sinister and confounding. Right, because isn't that like a creature or set of creatures? Right, yeah. That like a group of creatures that will lead someone astray off of the correct path and, and lead yeah. you to get lost and deeper and deeper into whatever bog it is that you're trapped in and then like maybe to your demise perhaps right. and so that's kind of what that i might i love how he's like oh so what about like will of the wisps and ghost lights and stuff like that that kind of thing and then one of the officers oh not that i can recollect and the other will of the what now my <laughs> love i absolutely adore this shared look here between yeah. uh, Susan and Hellboy, uh, I just think it's it's excellent. The look on her face, her her facial expression here is just perfect. It's yeah, I, I was gonna bring that up too. I really love it. It's so good. It's it was a really funny moment for me. I really dug that and I like that. I really appreciate you know the the work that's going into the different facial expressions of of our characters here. I think yeah. that's a big deal. I think yeah. a lot of the big books that will not be named, like it's just completely expressionless tracings of whatever magazine you wanted to trace this model. yeah but Rivera like, he does here, such a great job he actually yeah. gives a shit about like <laughs> the interaction between the characters and telling a story and it's so that was, that yeah. was a great moment there back with the professor they ask if he finds anything about a haunting and he talks about all this terrible shit that's happened in the area he talks about the seminal people Horror. how they were driven out of the u.s Forced to embark on the Trail of Tears. The Seminole are a Native American people originally from, from Florida. Today they live in Oklahoma and Florida and comprise three federally recognized tribes. The Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, the Seminole Tribe of Florida, and the McCuskey Tribe of Indians of Florida, as well as independent groups. The Seminole people emerged in a process of ethnogenesis from various Native American groups who settled in Florida in the 18th century most significantly northern Muskegee Creeks from what is now Georgia and Alabama. When they ask, you know, did you find anything that would account for a haunting? He immediately is, well, there are several possibilities. Uh, a nearby sugar mill plantation was the site of one of the first large-scale slave revolts in North America. Um, escaped slaves joined with remnants of native tribes that have been decimated by encounters with Europeans and Americans and became the Seminole. Seminole themselves were driven out of U.S. troops, forced to embark on the Trail of Tears to make room for white settlers. The original inhabitants of the region, the Timucua, uh, may have been the first North American Indians to encounter Spanish explorers when Ponce Leon arrived in 1513, but the Timucua were wiped out by disease. Brought by explorers, their numbers reduced from hundreds of thousands to a bare handful by the 19th century. So, a lot of fucked up shit. 
going on yeah. here. Yeah. Is and the setting for our story. The Tamuka were Native American people who lived in northeast and north central Florida. They were the largest indigenous group in that area and consisted of about 35 chiefdoms, leading many thousands of people. The various groups of Temuqua spoke several dialects. At the time of European contact, they had the present-day Florida and Georgia with an estimated population of 20,000. One thing that I thought was interesting is as Broom is talking about this and over this next scene, like his face is all in darkness. I thought that was an interesting choice even hellboy is in darkness in this one scene well, we don't see any of the characters faces because we're I, I feel like was that choice consciously yeah. made to give attention to the, the this horrific history right. the story here we're not really focusing on broom he's not right. he's not the yeah. character we're focusing on we're focusing on the history of, of these people i just and what think they the lighting yeah, yeah is really interesting and really yeah I, I wonder if that's why but there is this little beat right here, you see this little kid sees Hellboy and he's like, holy shit! Yeah. <laughs> this one kid sees Hellboy as he's walking up the stairs right here. Um, but then even over on the next page, I think it's interesting how Broom, still they still have the shadow. darkness over part of I love that. I think that is so interesting. And it just looks fucking cool, too. It looks fucking cool, You know cool, what yeah. I mean? You know, whether, the, whether there's a, uh, a narrative uh, reason for that or not, it does look fucking cool. So, you know, all this death and all these horrible things have happened in one place. Broom thinks maybe they can put the spirit to rest. So Hellboy's like, are we going to go back out there now or what? So Zhang says the sooner the better, but she needs to get something. And we cut over to the ruins of the sugar mill. The thing that Zhang went back for was the Trishul. We saw her use it last week in Occult Intelligence. We learned in that story that the weapon helps Zhang focus her third eye, causing more sustained and specific visions. And remember Sanhu said that like when she has her vision, she's able to like see things that have happened or mm-hmm. that are going to happen or that are happening. She says it's helpful because the longer the visions last, the easier it is to understand their context. Right. And this thing mm-hmm. helps them to last. That's cool. Okay. So I love all this. And again, if you check out the sketchbook section, Rivera took pictures of himself holding like a bar, oh, fun. you know, to kind of like get those kind of poses. And I love this where she holds it over her face. Oh, yeah. It looks great. Oh, yeah. God, that is awesome. And that's smart of him to work from a real life reference, because I think often you see when people are drawing hands, the fingers will look not quite right. Because there will be a tendency to, if you're just kind of freestyling it, freehanding, if you're drawing just from memory, like, right. there will be, unless you're very, very practiced and like a master at this, um, at, at what you do, there's a tendency to draw the thumbs and the fingers in the wrong spot because you think, like, wouldn't it be here? But really, no, it is not. And so the fa- it's, uh, you can really tell that a reference was used because oh, yeah. it looks very natural, like that's someone's hands holding something. As opposed to not quite right, this is yeah. a little bit off. So yeah, that's good. It's a good idea to always try. Yeah, and I thought those were cool. Get real life reference. Um, I if like you looking can. at all yeah. that stuff. But yeah, that panel where she's holding it in front of her face is super good. I like that. Oh yeah, they use it for like the chapter break art in the trade. I was like, yes, this looks awesome. So Zhang senses the presence, and Hellboy erupts in flames now. Ah, oh, jeez. And there is just some tremendous art in this sequence. I mean, Rivera, he can draw anything. I mean, he, you know, the way that he draws this sequence with Hellboy, Hellboy is basically on fire. The fire is consuming him more and more. 
At one point, it even looks like he's breathing fire. I I love that his reaction though is the way that one might react if uh if if they stubbed their toe. Right. Just, Damn it! <laughs> I wonder if that's the first uh, trench coat he lost. I know. Oh. Remember he told uh, Roger, he's, he was like, yeah, I go through trench coats all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, damn it. Professor Broom asks if Susan can put the spirit to rest. And so she sees a vision and it's all that horrible stuff, right? We see the Seminole people. We see the Sugar Mill Riot. Awful. We see um, the Tamuka people being conquered by the conquistadors and then in the middle there's this like gnarled tree and the way the tree is broken up to make the panels yeah it's well this is incredible the the branches of the tree them themselves are actually creating the different panels it's really fantastic yeah i love that yeah and the ground of course the here where it's just like this ground is split open there's fire right yeah looks great so right uh professor broom was right like it's everything that's happened in this area Broom says we must quiet the spirit, and we see Hellboy, and he's like fighting the fire now. Now it's become like this giant <laughs> monster. A big fire that is incredible how they're guy. like pushing on each other and stuff like that, and it's like turning into like this tree thing, kind of like what she saw. Yes, yeah. but she says this isn't a spirit. It's not a haunting. She tells Hellboy it's this place. It remembers all that suffering that happened here, and so Hellboy he. When he hears this, I think this is so interesting. He kind of relinquishes. He's like, okay, I'm not fighting back. Throughout this whole thing, it's like burned all his all his clothes off yeah. now at this point. And he's just like, burn all you want? Yeah. He says, but haven't enough people suffered already? And then we see like the spirit kind of separate from him and start to dissipate. And he's like, I get it. You're angry. That panel's incredible. Yeah, that's a good panel. Oh, yeah. So you'll also see this in the sketchbook section. Rivera, he made a 3D model of Hellboy. Oh, wow. And then used lighting to turn it around. Wow. To kind of like get a lot of this, a lot of these images. That's fantastic. And these specific panels on this page, like his back and then his face right here, like he used the model to kind of get those. So. It's interesting. I love seeing hey, all the amount of work that he goes, yeah, that he if, like puts in. If you're a sculptor, that's one way to get your references. Right. Well, he made it in a computer. It's like oh, a computer 3D okay. model. I should have said that. Yeah, it's like a 3D model in the computer, and he like screen grabs it at different well, angles hey, or whatever. Well, hey, if you're a, a 3D modeler, then there you go. That's one way to get your references. So then we cut to them. They're like in this like cafe or something right on the beach. She's uh, and Jang's describing her vision. She's like, it wasn't a single moment. It was like the long history, all the pain and rage and anguish, all concentrated in one spot, as if it were a psychic scar on the land itself. Broom says, the flames were unable to consume you, Hellboy, but you couldn't hope to overcome centuries of pain. You can only acknowledge it remember it he's like i get it you're angry yeah like he acknowledged yeah. it you know what i mean and i love that they i mean obviously they had to find something for him to wear all the clothes burned <laughs> off which is another thing yes his clothes would have burned off so they're you know but yeah. they had to find a, a, a shirt big enough to fit him that says daytona <laughs> beach on it they had to get him some some shorts here some very short shorts his tail they had to like you know, it's like it's ripped open. Yeah, they yeah. had to rip a hole in the back for his tail and everything, and so. Oh, they're eating some just... like crabs or something. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So they're having some seafood. That's great. Hellboy's like, yeah, well, I won't be forgetting that anytime soon. But what the heck are we going to tell the sheriff? 
And then we just like, cut. I love this, how we cut outside of the diner, then we cut out onto the beach. And there's some people and they have a campfire. Really cool. I love that little one shot. Um, a great way to wrap up the 1955 series. And I did want to talk about the sketchbook a little bit um, of all the 1955 stories. So last week we talked about Sean Martinborough. I love how his sketches here of Hellboy, it does resemble that Mignola, early Mignola style. Yeah. I love how he says Bruce Willis McLean hairline. <laughs> There's a note here that's about the hairline that's like, ah, use a Bruce Willis uh, reference when he's John McLean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John, The John McLean hair. That's excellent. You can see the Mignola influence yeah. in there a little bit. He says, capturing that jawline and only being able to draw the bottom set of teeth is are not as easy as it might sound. Ah. So I wonder if that's like some of the guidelines that he was that he was given. Um, we also see some great sketches of the monster, the demon he even put here. Um, these are my initial sketches of the main baddie demon, which are based on Mike's original design. I had fun exaggerating the demon's proportions, giving him elongated arms, legs, and a set of private parts that mostly seem to stay in shadow. You were talking about the demon wiener last wiener. week. <laughs> yeah, I really love the style that Martin Bro brought to this series. Um, I love these layouts by Chirilla. So it's really cool how he laid out the entire issue. He's like, okay, these pages are going to be this. You don't see that in a, you know, I, sure. I, I'm sure a lot right? of artists do that, but I've just never seen it. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. I like that. Um, and you also see how much he draws in the margins and stuff like that. So, I was messaging Ryan, and we were like, I wonder if his pages are out there, you know what I mean? If Trilla's original art is out there, because it looks really cool. He really does a lot on the sides. Um, he mentioned, this is something that I need some help for with our listeners. Trilla writes, I got to write two jokes in Ghost Moon and Occult Intelligence. See if you can spot them. I didn't know what he was talking about there. I, I, I would like to know what what those jokes are. Yeah, if you got any inside. Yeah, um, help me figure that out. I got to look at that a little bit more. Got any inside information on that? And then here are some more of his pencils. I really like seeing this. He really is like a cartoonist, you know? We also get these amazing pencils by Rivera. He says, I plan my pages in Photoshop, document that is split into roughly four sections. The first is a screenshot of the script, so I always have easy access. The second is a quarter page of the first impression sketches numbered according to the panel. Next is reference if needed. That could be photos, but more often than not, it's images from previous pages, issues, or character studies. The last section is a detailed laid out with word balloons for approval. The process can take anywhere from two and a half to six hours, depending on what's on the page. And so there are several examples throughout, which I really like because you really get to see like, if you open up like the corner, you see like some of the 3D model in there. And then he's got some of Mignola's Hellboy in there. And then he's got some of his little sketches right. in there. You know All what I mean? And so there. as you scroll through, you can, and then he's got the pictures of himself and the pictures of the 3D model. You know, I think that is really cool. Just so much fun to look at all this stuff. I really like that. Um, he also mentions his dad inks all of his work since 2011. I tried to save him some work on this issue by inking some areas, but he insisted on doing everything. He prints out my pencils in blue line and inks over them. So we usually have two originals for each page. That's awesome. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, so those are just so much fun to look at. 
Um, and then these cover layouts. I, I always enjoy these cover layouts. I would love to have a page of these. But so remember in that story, there was the giant leatherback sea turtle. Yeah. So there was a cover concept that it says leatherback baby's boots off. <laughs> Hellboy's sitting there with his boots all messed up. And there's the le- leatherback turtle babies. Aww. I would have loved that as Cute. the cover. God, I would love to see that fully realized. Anyway, that's a cool idea for a cover. All of these are great. And then we also get the cover, the full cover for issue three of Occult Intelligence. Awesome. Great way to wrap up that 1955 series. And we're actually going to go on to 1956 on this episode, since that was only one issue. I do want to talk about this amazing cover by Adam Hughes. Um, Adam Hughes has done some really cool stuff in the Hellboy universe before, like Krampusnot, and I really like what he does with, like, Vavara, you know, the way that he does yes. her on this Great, cover yeah. is really nice, and um, some good stuff. I like Hellboy in a sombrero. Yeah, that's a really nice cover. Go a couple pages in, and you see that one little panel. It's Hellboy in the coffin and the uh, Ogjuja hat down on the bottom yeah, of the panel. Yeah. I'm like, I was just like, why is this here? Yeah, I was thinking that too because I haven't read this. So I was yeah. also intrigued by that. That's going to yeah. come up at some point, I imagine. I would assume so. Right? So <laughs> this is a five-part miniseries. Today we're reading issues one through three, which were published from November 2018 to January 2019. Written by Mignola and Chris Robertson. Illustrated by three different artists who share the same issues. Very interesting. Did you? I've never seen that before. Have they yeah, done that before no, in the series? I was actually wondering uh, why that yeah. decision was made as I was reading it. Like, what was the reason and, for this? And, and we'll talk about this a little bit more. But decision. I think it's interesting who they give what. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So we've got Mike Norton. We remember him from the BPRD, Hell on Earth, The Exorcist. That was one of those Ashley Strode stories back in the day. We covered it on episode 68. We've got Michael Avon Oming, who yeah. did BPRD, The Soul of Venice, way back in episode 14, and Abe Sapien, Land of the Dead, which we covered on episode 41. And then newcomer to the Hellboy world is Yishan Lee. Lee is a Chinese-British comics illustrator. She's worked on Batwoman, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and obviously Hellboy. She also did a graphic novel in 2020 called Mary, The Adventures of Mary Shelley's Great, 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 Great Grandmother. It was selected by uh, the American Library Association as one of 2021's great graphic novels for teens. I'd love to check that out. That sounds fun. Colored by Dave Stewart and lettered by Clem Robbins. And covers by Dave Johnson. So he's done some amazing covers for us back on Hell on Earth. And the BPRD 1940s, so I'm so glad to see Dave Johnson back on cover duty. His Twitter handle is like Devil Pig Johnson or something like that. And his little logo, you see his little like stamp or whatever. It's kind of like a devil pig. I guess I, I think that's what that's supposed to be. Opening this chapter one, we get this memo opening. So we kind of saw this in Devil You Know. They had one issue where it opened up with the memo. And basically, this memo is just telling us that there have been a lot of changes at the BPRD, right? They have this new guy, Lindbergh. He's come in. He's the new consultant. And Margaret Lane, Margaret, who has been with the BPRD since forever, now she is the assistant director of operations. And it also says that they're going to be upgrading all their equipment. They're getting money. 
They've heard the complaints of the equipment failure in the field, and they're going to be getting some new uniforms and stuff like that. So we open in the BPRD Falling Water Building, the headquarters in Fairfield, Connecticut, and Margaret is briefing Hellboy and two new agents, Hendricks and Murphy. Because they're short-staffed, these newbies have to go out in the field on an international assignment with Hellboy. But they're cool with it. However, Hellboy seems distracted, and he's staring out the window. Margaret tells the newbies that they will follow Hellboy's lead, but he's not even paying attention. Good thing, too, because Margaret says, The situation is serious. We've got some Mexican vampires. Yeah, there's human sacrifices, and the death toll keeps rising. And we get some gruesome imagery by Norton and Stewart here. And I don't know if you remember when we saw the Hellboy in Mexico stories, they did show like Richard Corbin, you know, drew all this kind of same imagery. He also drew like bodies on the telephone lines and stuff like that. And you kind of see one there in the background. Yeah. So after the briefing, Hellboy sticks around to talk to Margaret. We kind of get this scene. I, I like this, how he's been looking out the window and then now it's kind of like outside looking in at him for a minute. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Just that one silent panel there. He says, Margaret, I wanted to see it's about Mac. Well, with the professor away and Archie and the rest of the gang out in the field, there's not really anyone else I can. I'm sorry, Hellboy, but my hands are full, Margaret interrupts. Maybe one of the office staff can look after your dog while you're away. I don't think I'll be able to find the time. Yeah, Hellboy says, but I really need to talk. I've got a dash. I'm late for an appointment, Margaret says, with our new intelligence consultant. Good luck out there, okay? And he's trying to get off his chest. I really need someone to talk to about yeah. this. I really need someone to talk to about this. And she's just like, I don't have the time to fucking She thinks talk that to. he wants her to do something for him. Yeah. Like, take care of the dog or whatever. But he's really looking for, like, an emotional yeah. outlet. Yeah, right. Uh, this is heartbreaking, right? As we walk out so to the sad. car, yeah. he's looking at a little picture of him and Mac. And so he's got the glove and Max got the ball. Um, we saw them throwing the ball, yeah. you know, in the 1940s and he's, series. He's hugging Mac. And... Yeah, it's really cute. And so uh, they were like, ready to roll, big guy? And he's like, all right, might as well, I guess. And as the car drives away, we see Max grave. Aww, His dog crazy. died. This kind of broke me a little bit because, you know. It's sad, and it's his dog. Well, yeah, you when know? you know, and when our uh, loved ones pass away, be they human or be they dog, it's always very, you know, it's upset. It's 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 tough. It's hard to say goodbye to someone you love, and you know, you need someone to talk to about it. And uh, he can't find anyone who yeah. is willing to even give him the time yeah. of day. My childhood dog, and I didn't even have that dog when I was a baby. After I lost that dog, I didn't have a pet for like 20 years. Until he, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that there wasn't, until he, yes. we started living together and everything and, and maybe not that long, got but married almost and that whatever long. and like yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. And, and yeah. so that was something that I, you know, I very, <sighs> I remember, I yeah. yeah. So, I mean, for, yeah. he's 11 years old here, you know what I mean? And like, I guess he matures quicker, but still, you know what I mean? That That's rough but, at yeah. any age. I mean, he, he's still uh, essentially just 11. He probably hasn't really suffered yeah. a loss, like Stegner said in the last uh, last week's episode. Right. He did say that. Uh, oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Last week he said, oh, your stupid childhood dog is still alive. Yeah. Yeah. And but so, it, it's also sad that like he's trying to talk to, uh, yeah. to, Mar- to Margaret Lane about it, but she's like, get somebody else to watch your dog. But the dog's already dead, so she doesn't even realize that his dog has passed away. Right. Mm. And no matter who you are, no matter 
you know, at whatever age, uh, whatever your circumstances, it's hard. It's hard to lose someone you love, you know, and if that person is a dog, so be it, you know, and that's, that's really rough and you need someone to talk to and, and, and to process that and, and to go through that with, you know, sometimes you need to be able to lean on somebody and when you're grieving, and it looks like he obviously since yeah. it seems like nobody even knows about this yet it looks like he had to you know take care of max final arrangements himself this looks like to be a handmade right. marker grave marker here and, he and put everything the little the basketball little, gl- the baseball glove on there and the little collar oh. and everything yeah. and so you know it's and it's it's inevitable but it's also something that's like yes you would like to probably process this with somebody yeah, and I feel really bad for Hellboy. Yeah. He can't even find anyone who yeah. will even look up at him from their paperwork long enough to understand that right. he's going yeah. through a grieving process here. So we cut over to Washington D.C. We got the motherfucking CIA. <laughs> Fucking joke. <laughs> Broom is there to meet with the director, Mister Dulles, and basically, there's just a bunch of weird stuff. Right, first this guy. Is like, ah, uh, I guess you changed your mind about that woman running your operations. And Broom's like, no, that's not what it is at all. What? And he's like, oh, is that guess- guy Lindbergh? Is he like giving you problems? And he's like, no, it's he's fine. You changed your mind about letting that woman run your bureau's operations. I've got the perfect man for the job. When you know, he's like, no, it's fine. And he keeps interrupting him to try and like yes. anticipate what the problem's gonna be. Like, chill out. He's also got a pipe here. He's smoking a pipe. Oh yeah, we got some nice pipe action here. I think this is uh, Yishan Lee doing these pages. Although the shape of the pipe changes drastically from panel to panel. I'm not trying to call you out or anything, but uh, it does. Here, it's curved when we oh, are right, and to it. Oh, right, and then it's straight on the next straight. page. It's like a magic pipe. Maybe this guy is uh, something going on paranormal here with this guy. <laughs> paranormal pipe. With Mr. Dulles, yeah. yeah. So Dulles is like, is this about, you know, the Soviets because this is what, you know, that's the priorities or whatever. We need meaningful progress. And Broom is like, it's tangentially related to that. Well, out with it for pity's sake. What are we talking about here? Well, you keep fucking interrupting, yeah. trying to anticipate what he's going to talk about. He what are you just talking says, about? Get down. He's trying to tell you. He just says, enkelodite. Oh, that's, Dulles yeah. says. That's quite an interaction there. He just says, Enkelodite. Broom's like, I thought it was destroyed in 48, but we saw somebody with a sample of it in 53, and these E-bombs that they were testing had Enkelodite in it. And Dulles is just like, drop it, Broom. Excuse me? He's like, we have more pressing concerns, all this kind of stuff. Than cases that were closed years ago. Dulles says that Broom is obsessing over old business, and with taxpayer dollars now being funneled into the Bureau, they need results. And so Broom is like, I assure you, Lindbergh has our complete support and the undivided attention of the agent that I've assigned to assist him. Well, he's talking about how they might pull funding if he doesn't right. play ball, which is the yeah. not-so-subtle subtext here. So we cut back to the BPRD, and we see Lindbergh, and we see the agent that's assigned to him, and it's Susan Jang. He tells her he thinks she's underutilized at the BPRD, but Susan says she's enjoyed being a field agent. Lindbergh wants to see her powers in action, so he gives her a picture of Moravec. She also remembers the attack on Hellboy. Remember when he shocked Hellboy, grabbed him by the face? We talked about that. We get to see it from Zhang's angle this time. So she looks at the picture. She holds up. She holds up, her talisman. Yeah, she, she holds up the trishel, and her eyes go green. She has her vision, right? So what does she see here? Well, it seems like uh, she's. I don't. I don't remember who this guy is, but I remember that's Moravec. Yeah. Ah, okay, that guy. 
And then also the big old Vivara demon. Ah, okay. Yep. So Susan snaps out of it. She says she saw Moravec. He was afraid, she said, as if there was something trapped inside of him, some sort of power that was both imprisoned within him and also holding him prisoner. But both that man and that power were both afraid of something even greater, a presence at once impossibly ancient and unspeakably evil. Hmm, I wonder who who that could be. <laughs> but then she's like, look, I really have to go. I have another flight. I have this mission that I have to go on. And, you know, Lindbergh's like, already? You're supposed to be assigned, you know, specifically for me. And she's like, well, you know, I have this prior commitment. We'll get to the bottom of this. I promise you, she says like as she leaves. Yeah. It's a good we got to get you one of those t-shirts. It's good. So then we cut over to Moscow, USSR. The Special Science Service Headquarters. This is very clearly Oming's set of pages. Here we go, yeah. right? Here's <laughs> Oming. And they always give him the Vivara. Love it. Which I think is That's really great. cool. I love coming back to these pages um, every time we get uh, these scenes. And so she's there and she's interrogating Morvek. So we just saw Zhang's vision, right, of Morvek in front of this demon. And then we cut over and he's in front of Vivara. Right? Mm, yeah. See, so that's kind of cool, right? She's yeah. seen what was happening. Right. And she was saying he was afraid. So Vavara's interrogating him. She's like, you made a mess of this stuff, you know? And they talk about this one guy says, Comrade Morvek's binding tattoos have weakened, making the Perkunas entity harder to control. So Zhang said that there was something inside him. That was both holding him prisoner and being imprisoned by him. And then this other line mm-hmm. that was very intriguing. Uh, Father Malachim was just about to oversee the procedure when you came right. in. Right. Okay. So I did look up Perkunas. This was a common Baltic god of thunder and the second most important deity in the Baltic pantheon after Divas. In both Lithuanian and Latvian mythology, he is documented as the god of sky, thunder, lightning, storms, rain, fire, war. Law, order, fertility, mountains, and oak trees. So he's a pretty pretty important guy, and thunder and lightning were yeah. in there, which are part of this guy's yeah. powers. So yeah. I wonder what that is. You know, they they don't really tell us. So well, that's kind of neat. Yeah, saying that uh, they can sense the the spirits. You know, buzzing and, around inside, right? Yeah. Trying to break free. Oh, does it tickle? All this. You know, obviously right. very yeah, like yeah. dramatic language here from Vivara as they want to do, and then uh, he goes, "There is a little pain, but I do my duty." And then in the background, there, you know, he's sitting down for another session. Oh, I guess so it's right. like a magical yeah. tattoo session. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, I, uh, that's pretty cool. Wow, I like, I like the idea of uh, you know trapping an entity inside yeah. somebody and binding them with tattoos. That's rad. To, that's actually pretty cool. That's super cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the guy has a tattoo machine back here. That's what he has. Yep. Interesting. So very cool. I love that. So then these officials come in to talk to Vivara. This is Skuratov. That's this bald guy, right? Ivan Antonovich Skuratov. Skuratov. There so you go. So that's yeah. quite a name. And Dr. Boim is the female of Avara Kozer, Pretty Riza. So they, they tell her about the Enkeldite samples. They say they match the Tunguska glass. So I guess in this universe, like, that's what happened there. They detonated some sort right. of bomb. The Heliopic Brotherhood of Ra detonated a bomb there. It created some sort of glass, and it's similar to the Enkeldite. And so they're like, this could be incorporated into our own prototypes. 
you know, whatever. They're trying to make some sort of weaponized version of the Enkelodite. So as they're telling all Vivara about all this, she's getting like super bored about all this. Skuratov says, look here, Vivara, you need to take this seriously or, and she's like, or what, Ivan Antonovich? Yeah. I love that panel yeah, right like, there. Or what? Yeah. I'm a fucking demon. Remember to whom you are speaking, little man. You serve at my pleasure, and I am not pleased. Eee. And they're like, yes, comrade director. That is enough for today, I think, Vavara says. Thank you, pretty Riza, and thank you, Ivan Antonovich. I will go find someone else to entertain me now. The look and- of horrified yes. like <laughs> realization on this person's face as she turns to the other guy is just, uh, yeah, that's good stuff. I was going to ask you, is this a real painting? Did you find out information about it? Oh, you know I did, Aubrey. (laughs) All right. Awesome. Is it something to do with the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse? uh, Yeah, it is. Art Um, history, Wuchan. What's really cool is this is a painting, but they've silhouetted it. Sure. They have taken all the detail out of it and just made it, uh, Oming just made it into a silhouette. So this is Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse by Viktor Vaznetsov. The painting depicts the four horsemen of the apocalypse described in the book of Revelation, death, famine, war, and conquest. It measures 72 by 136 centimeters and is held in the Glinka State Central Museum of Musical Culture in Moscow. I thought we had discussed Vatnesov's art before in the Hellboy stories, but I was confused by Yuri Vatnesov. He did the Vasilisa painting and the Baba Yaga paintings that we discussed back in Darkness Calls. It's just oh, okay. a, but it's a different guy with the same last name who was also a painter in Russia. <laughs> you know, maybe it was a common name at the time. And I was looking at these other paintings. Is this like Karl Marx over here or something? Yeah, I mean, it's probably like Lenin and um, probably Karl Marx. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. I just looked up that painting. It looks badass. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll post a side-by-side comparison of it. It is super cool for Oming to put that in there. So the Four Horsemen thing, uh, you often hear about uh, war, famine, death, and then either conquest or pestilence, I think, sometimes. I usually hear pestilence, but yeah. Sure. So Um, those are the same guy or whatever. And so it's just depending on your, like, interpretation or translation or whatever, I think. So, but there's, I mean, there's probably a wealth of information you could get online, I guess, at, you know, Wikipedia or something like that. But um, I'm not really sure about any of that. Yeah. um, It's interesting. It's interesting you say that because I went back and looked at um, the storm and the fury. And in that one, they say pestilence. Right. But when I looked up this painting, it said conquest. Sure. Yeah, right. So I was like, did I get that wrong? Anyway. No, no. I think there, there's different interpretations and there's different translations and stuff like that. And there's behold. And then I saw the seventh seal was broken and the trumpets were blasting. And then I sure, saw sure. upon a, a white horse, the figure of conquest or whatever it is that you happen to be translating it from and whatever and some... I guess sometimes it's conquest and sometimes it's pestilence, but the other three are definitely war and famine and, uh, yeah, yeah. and death and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, I just thought that was interesting how sometimes it's this yeah. thing and sometimes it's a different thing. I do want to talk about this Dave Johnson cover for Chapter 2. I really love this. I love all the imagery here. We got Hellboy trapped in the tequila bottle. I like how it says Luchador Bros. <laughs> yeah, I love this. This is a great cover. Dave Johnson always just kills it on these covers. I mean... I had one of his uh, covers on my as the background on my phone for like months for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that was the one with Johan on the horse, right? Y- yep. Hell yep. yeah, those wasteland covers are incredible. 
They're so good. Some good stuff, man. Uh, I love the 1948 covers that he did. They oh, all yeah. have like this green tint to them, or they all have like this kind of like anyway it's a super cool effect Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but cutting back to the interiors i think yishan lee does a really cool job with professor broom's like interior little office area you know he's oh yeah some cool stuff in there i was looking at this little like diagram that's on the wall right here i was like what are those sigils i bet you that's a real thing too i should have looked that up yeah i just zoomed in on them right when you said that (laughs) yeah yeah that's good stuff Broom is working away when Margaret comes in to ask for his opinion on new operation assignments. She asks about his secret projects, and she wonders where Zhang's at. She's supposed to be working with Lindbergh, but Lindbergh said she had another assignment, but Margaret doesn't have Zhang down for another assignment. And Broom reveals, running an errand for me, let's say. And she's like, damn it, Trevor, I took over your operations at your request, need I remind you. But you just hair off to New York or D.C. for days on end at the drop of a hat, leaving me to run not just the operations, but practically the entire bureau. And she says he's pulling resources here and there. She doesn't know where people are doing. And what of Hellboy? He's been the better part of two months now with nary a peep, and you don't seem to. And then Professor Broom gets a call, and he's like, I need to take this. So even in the middle of her trying to communicate with him, and then even bringing up Hellboy, like, you would think... I don't know, yeah. man. Like, God, that sucks. Yeah. I mean, I know he's trying to figure out because, I mean, he's trying to figure out what's going on with the Encalidite and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, it is kind of a dick move to, uh, you know, start pulling agents off projects they're supposed to be on and just using the resources as your own personal piggy bank or something like that. You know? Right. Well, and also, like, I, I can't believe that he's not even he doesn't even care that Hellboy's been gone for so long. I mean, I guess... Right. I don't know. I guess maybe... Has he done that before now, or is this the first time? This feels like the first time. Yeah. Because um, what we've seen in the other older BPRD stories, he was, like, younger, and then we saw him go on his first mission. What was that in Hellboy and the BPRD 50? Right. I can't remember. Uh, So, yeah, this might be the first time he ran away. So, we see the call that Broom was waiting for. It's Susan Zhang. She's in Boynton Beach, Florida. This is a city in Palm Beach County. It's a real place. Although, I didn't look for this Reef Beach Motel. It looks like a real place. Damn it, I should have looked for that. Well, it might be, but it also might just be kind of like, you know, uh, indicative of the style of roadside um, motels. Right, right. She's talking to Broom, and she's looking for this guy, Betts. She relays the mission to Broom. It turns out Betts is a retired Air Force official, and I think he was in the 1948 series. That's where he's being referenced here. I did want to point out just like a weird technical thing. I think there's actually a typo in this scene. I don't, because this didn't make sense to me. Okay, so... Zhang is watching Bet. She's surveilling him, pretending like she's golfing at the same resort that he's at. And she's observing him, and he says to the caddy, five bucks since I come in, two under par on the next hole. And I think it's supposed to say, five bucks says I come in, two under oh, par. interesting. I think it's like, hey, five bucks says I come in, two under par on the next hole. Ah, five bucks you know, since doesn't make sense you know i i, I was having trouble with that yesterday too when i was reading it and i was just like wait a something that's that's a little weird <laughs> yeah i was like i don't think that's right so anyway i just thought that was interesting maybe they'll or fix he, it for the collected edition <laughs> or maybe he's like saying like um you owe me five bucks since 
uh, come into oh, under par. Oh, that's what it is. That's what he's saying. He's saying five bucks since I come into under par. That's what. Okay, you're right, Aubrey. It's not a typo. He's yeah. saying I mean, like how would it could he, be either one. How would he know that he was going to come into under par in the next hole unless he was clairvoyant? I mean, you you don't know that he's going to come into under, but he might hit a sand trap and just absolutely right. Hit. No, yeah, that doesn't. You know what I mean? I yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough uh. about golf to know if that makes sense, but it seemed like that was wrong to me. Anyway, basically, she uses all this as a ploy. She bumps into him, and she's able to see. She has this incredible vision. We got to talk about this, right? He's there with Broom overseeing the destruction of the Enkelodite, but then she also sees he didn't destroy all of it. And the so- panels are shards of Enkelodite. Oh yes, That's so creative. yes, that is yeah. so cool. That's great. It's a double a double page too, and um, she also that. sees that it's being delivered to the center. And we saw a little bit of this in the last story, right, where we saw they had the Enkelodite in this kind of like container. She sees it's that government facility in the Rockies. And then she goes, when I focused on that center, I saw it in ruins. Maybe something in the future? Question mark. <laughs> That's hell on earth, right? That's yes, end of days, right? Yeah. She's like the whole area had been laid waste like a bomb had been dropped. That's because the Ogdra Jihad came down. And she's like, and there was a little girl in a white dress with blonde pigtails just standing there and smiling like, it was the funniest thing she'd ever seen. And she was there, too. Yes, she was there. I remember when that pilot flew by and he was like, what the heck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> she just waves at him. Anyway, so, so she's then... Not, she's not feeling good after that. Right, she's she like, snaps uh, out of it and she's like... She's kind of woozy there. She excuses herself. Well, he's like, oh, yeah. are, you all, are you all right? And she's like, yeah, I'm fine. I gotta get out of here, though, because you are terrible. <laughs> So she tells Broom, you know, maybe I can use the Trishel and focus on the girl. And he says, don't worry about the girl. She's not your concern. And she's like, what? And he's like, you've done good work. Go ahead and head back home. And she's like, not my concern. What the heck does that mean? And then there's another artist. Yeah. So I think we're back to Mike Norton here in Fairfield, Connecticut. We see the Driftwood Grill. You know, I had to check in Fairfield, Connecticut if there was a place in Fairfield, Connecticut there is a Driftwood coffee shop and sandwich shop. There's also a Driftwood cafe, but I couldn't find Driftwood Grill. I did find an article mm-hmm. on ctpost.com called Lost Restaurants Remainder of Fairfield Eateries describing a bar that was called The Driftwood that was opened in 1967, but that would have been after the story. But there are a lot of places called Driftwood there, so okay, that makes sense that this would be there. And we see Margaret and Archie, they're actually out on a date. Remember Stegner was like, hey, yeah. you got to you gotta go for it. And Archie was like, it's not like that. Well, here they are yeah. actually on a date, That's so fun. I thought that was kind of interesting, right? And he's talking about oh, how yeah. uh, he'd eat anything compared to the the bullshit he's had to eat out in the field. <laughs> right. He's, you know, yeah. he's had to put up with a lot of uh, bad food, and she's like, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that going around. He goes, uh, it could be a plate of shoe leather. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> and she's all like, your steak looks a little overdone. Do you want to send it back? No. <laughs> <laughs> and so he's like, ah, I've been putting up with a lot of bullshit, and she's like, yeah, that's going around. He's like, oh, what? what's, what's the matter? Yeah, I've been putting up with a whole lot lately, that's all. She doesn't want to talk about it in public, so he's like, okay, well, let me get this shoe leather down, and then we can go talk. I like how he says that. Yeah. So then they go outside, they have a chat, and she basically talks about all the stuff. You know, Broom is running her ragged, he's pulling resources from her, and Archie's like, and I'm sure that the professor is feeling the pinch too, but do you really think that he'd be hiding secrets from you? And she's like, "That have you met him? 
That's all he does is hide secrets. <laughs> She's like, he keeps going to Brooklyn to work on his personal projects. That uh, brownstone in Brooklyn, she mentioned, that's where he's going to have the eight tapes later, I'm assuming. Oh, right. Yeah. Good job there, Aubrey. Um, Abe Sapien Regressions. I forgot what episode that is. You can look it up. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, I can't even get him to talk to me about Hellboy these days. And Archie says, he still hasn't checked in. Not a word so far. As far as we know, he's still done in Mexico. God only knows what he's doing there all this time. Somewhere in Mexico. This is the connection to the Hellboy in Mexico stories, right? Oh, yeah. We covered those back on episode 30. Yeah, so this adds a whole other perspective because those stories are called A Drunken Blur. And you just assume that Hellboy just went down there to get drunk. But really, he couldn't talk to anybody about the death of his dog. Yeah. And that's what ended up happening. Because if you go back and look at Hellboy in Mexico, he says, in the very beginning, Abe's like, what happened? Hellboy says, Hendrix and Murphy quit and went home after seeing all the dead bodies and shit there. And that's when Hellboy met those brothers, the Luchadors. And so this is what, this is how he's coping with his dogs. Yeah. We see Esteban there with the tattoo. It's also kind of cool to see what was going on in the uh, the bureau when Hellboy was in his drunken blur down in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, I got to shout out Ryan Yule, book club member. I thought it was really cool to see Mike Norton draw the Hellboy in Mexico stuff. Yeah. Because Ryan just got a killer commission from Mike Norton. That's Hellboy fighting the Kamazots cool. wrestler oh, guy. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I'll ask Ryan if I can post that on our social media. So, yeah, very cool. I wonder if Ryan. I wonder if that's why Ryan got that commission. If he was like, "Hey, you draw some of the Hellboy in Mexico stuff. Do some more of that." Yeah. <laughs> sure. So we cut over to Broom's Brooklyn brownstone, and he's working on his secret projects there. He's meeting with someone, and he thanks them for coming on short notice. Let's just say I prefer to have this conversation in a place where I know that no one might be listening. I'm listening. It's Stegner, right? Yep. It's funny because getting him in on his secret mission here in Stegner is like, you got to be kidding. You're coming to me with this off the books malarkey because they don't have a good relationship. And Stegner's like, I still hold you accountable. I think you have, you know, my friend's blood on your hands. He mentions Kyle and Pike from 1948. He says they'd be rolling over in their graves if they knew that I was butting up with you after all of this. And Broom's like, that's precisely why I picked you, because you've been with the Bureau so long, I know that I can trust you. He says that people are trying to weaponize the Enkelodyte, and so he needs Stegner's help to go, like, check this out. There is no one else I would rather have at my side for this, he tells Stegner. There's this one line where Stegner's like, well, what about Hellboy? And Broom says, well, even if Hellboy was on hand, this caper requires subtlety, which has never been his forte. No, you are the man for the job. So Stegner says that he's in. They're going to go check out the center. We cut back over to the SSS headquarters in Moscow. And we see these guys. They're talking about that they have to... uh, They're trying to please the Politburo. This is the political bureau. It is the executive committee for communist parties. It is present in most former and existing communist states. And so they're like, oh, you know, we really need, like, production goals. I like how the bad guys, like, are worried with all this stuff. They're, like, talking about, you know, their department is going to be held accountable. Does anyone have any good news to share? So I did want to talk about this. These two researchers, they say, our team is continuing to work on the Noon Witch Project. But Father Malakim was having some trouble with the binding rituals. He had to step away from the project briefly to work on that Afghan project for the director. But Malakim insists that he is close to working out a solution. 
and we see this image of like I don't even what know is what this? is going on. Do yeah, you do you have any wild. indication of what this is? This is wild. No, there's. I mean, obviously they're working on a a binding ritual. So, like, have we seen this before? Or I'm I just have like not. this just totally assume, hit me over the head. I just assume it's something like what they did with Morvac. Maybe they're trying to create another one. And so they're trying to come up with something to be able to like something that they can report some progress on and all of a sudden this one guy kolev he's like we all know that she's the problem here i've had my fill of all these incessant delays all due to the whims of vivara and then in the next panel she's right there hello my lovely friends are my ears burning as our american cousins say and she's holding her hand up to her ear like, like that. I love that. My ears are burning. This idiom comes from the belief that a person's ears burn whenever others are discussing him or her, even if the person isn't present. This belief dates back to ancient Rome. Romans believe that if their right ear was burning, people were giving the person praise. Okay. So they're like, oh, someone's talking good about me. <laughs> oh, no, someone's talking bad about me. Right. She is gesturing yeah. with her hand to her left ear. So yeah. that would be talking bad. I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Is that a picture of Rasputin behind her? I was just about to ask that. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, all these guys' faces that are in the background. It's really cool, yeah. And so they're all surprised to see her. They're like, oh, we weren't expecting to see you. She's like, oh, well, everyone must be somewhere. Don't you agree? And And here here I... (laughs) I always feel it is good to listen to one's subordinates, to be available to hear their concerns. She's just like the height of creepery. She's being so fucking creepy. And she's like, do you have a concern to share? Oh, man. Omin draws her like a little doll. Yeah. It's really yeah. cool. I, I just love how they said, okay, Omin, you're going to do all these scenes. Like, that is just perfect. It's good stuff. Finally, she gets him to speak up. I did not mean to give offense. I just, I just feel as if our productivity is sometimes hindered by the additional projects that you assign, and it might be better if you were instead to, and that comrade collab is as far as you go. And then he lights up. She burns him and just walks away. So we've seen this scene before. Do you recognize this? Where she's walking across the table and somebody's on fire? We've actually seen this. So um, Peter Snyberg drew it on A Cold Day in Hell. There's this one scene. Okay, remember how they have... um, Eventually they put her in the jar. And they put her in the jar by having the radio tower that has that spell. And the spell is keeping her in the jar, right? And so there's this one mission, A Cold Day in Hell, where they have to go out and repair that radio tower. And the two agents, they ask Yosef, why are we out here? And he goes, I'm going to finally tell you. And so he tells them about Vivara, and there's a flashback, and we see this scene right here. Oh, wow. Which, it's just kind of like a throwaway scene. Where it's like, oh, obviously, I guess she did that. But then we get to actually see it happen. I don't know, it's kind of neat. That's actually pretty cool. I actually forgot about that, but I was thinking it was more like um, Jack Nicholson Joker in the 89 Batman oh, yeah. <laughs> or over in uh, Lucy Liu from uh, Kill Bill. <laughs> I also thought of Kill Bill because that's where she, she doesn't she do the same thing where one guy's like pissed off and she's like, oh, I want to hear your concern. And then she mm-hmm. just chops his head off or I, something. I don't think that there is any shortage of scenes yeah, yeah. from yeah. movies or books <laughs> or whatever where there's one guy that pipes up and the b- boss is like i'm gonna make an example out of you see yeah, and yeah. in front of everybody decides to whatever execute or, or beat up this person i think that that's just a very prevalent and pervasive you know sure. idea in uh in stories that we tell whether it be like you know situations like this or like mob boss stories or just whatever, yeah. like in various um pop culture and stuff like that like i think uh 
Wasn't there, uh, didn't the Joker do that in the Batman movie? He came up, he's like, I make the pencil disappear, or whatever. He, oh, yeah, you know, the and other then, one, like, there's yeah. just a, you know, there's like okay. a million examples of sure. this in, like, almost okay. every. Oh, wait, Aubrey, did you already mention that Joker one, or were you talking about a different Joker? He was talking about 89 Batman. 89 Batman. Because uh, he also does that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say, there was another movie that was like a, a, like a mob, like a mob movie I was thinking of where okay. they do that, where it was, um, god damn, what was the name of this fucking movie? I love this chapter three cover. I'm just dying over this cover. This is so cool. Oh um, man, it's fucking creepy as hell. <laughs> yeah, I love when Dave Johnson picks like a color. Like he did the 1948 <laughs> series where it was kind of like gray like this, but it was like bright green was the color. And here yeah. it's like the red really stands out. When we first saw Vivara in 1946, she had the bloody hands. So I thought that was kind of cool too, how they do that for mm. the cover on this one. I thought there was some form. Is there like a formatting issue on the digital version of this? Are you- is that just the way the pages are laid out? I thought that that was weird. Doesn't you talking look- about how like it doesn't have a bottom border? Yeah, and like I think sometimes comic books are just like that. Isn't yeah. okay. It seemed anyway. They I don't know. They extend it all the way to the edge sometimes. But then there's this white bar at the top. I was like, is that supposed to? Is that right? I think so. I don't know. I think anyway, it's, it's interesting because you see this one here. Where it's just going all the way across. Oh, you're right. I think yeah. that's just how it's formatted. I yeah. mean, some some artists take uh, liberties with the way that yeah. their you know, panels are. Yeah, made. Lee has some interesting uh, panel layouts on these. So we're open in Colorado. Broom and Stegner are out there looking for the center. Stegner likes it out there. He says he wants to move out there when he retires. And when he said that, that made me immediately think that he's going to die. I'm like, <laughs> oh, please don't talk about retiring. Because <laughs> if you talk about retiring, then something terrible is going to oh, happen man. to you. So I was like, oh, please don't let that happen. We we don't see him, but maybe he actually gets to, re- I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to retire. Yeah. Stegner also says that if Susan saw the center in one of her visions, he sure it exists because she's always right. Well, it appears your trust is not misplaced, Broom says, and we reveal the center, right? Shit. They found it. Broom's like, okay, well, we're going to wait till nightfall. We're going to go check it out. And Segner's like, maybe that Kevin in the Woods isn't such a great idea. Well, that's after the future all. location of the BPRD. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. Yeah, now Broom's seeing it. He never gets to actually live there, right? Yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. Back at the Bureau, we see Farrier. He's still there. He's training the newbies. And they're kind of rowdy, right? These two, Gustafson and Hinojosa, they start going at it over whether aliens are real. And Hinojosa says, don't joke about that. I've seen flying saucers with my own two eyes back when I was a sheriff's deputy in Marfa, Texas. Well, I saw something anyway. People have been seeing lights in the skies over Marfa clear back to the 1880s. Nobody's sure just what they are, but if you ask me, it's aliens. So um, I did want to talk about this because we've actually been to Marfa. Uh, We've driven out there to West Texas. It's really nice out there. And we've actually seen Marfa lights. There is actual a viewing center where you can go and hang out. And uh, it was a really surreal experience because it was raining and windy so hard. It turned my umbrella inside out. (laughs) Like you see in cartoons where it pulls the umbrella inside out. Like that actually happened to me. That's not a rare event. That happens a lot. I've never seen it. It's never happened to me. And this was like a really industrial strength umbrella. But anyway, we were out there just in the wind and the rain, just hanging out there. It was cold. And then you saw these like we fucking did. We red saw lines. You know what I mean? Like it was, We saw the Marfa lights. It was wild. That's um, cool. While you're looking at it, you're just like, what the heck am I seeing? But the Marfa lights, also known as the Marfa ghost lights, have been observed near Route 67 on Mitchell Flat, east of Marfa, Texas, in the United States. 
They have gained some fame as onlookers have attributed them to paranormal phenomena such as ghosts, UFOs, or will-o'-the-wisps, ah. which we were just talking about ah. in the last story. Scientific research suggests that most, if not all, are atmospheric reflections of headlights and campfires. Right on. So, yeah, and you can read a lot about those kind of phenomena. Or UFOs, one of those. Yeah. One of the two. And and they're everywhere. It's not just in Marfa. You can look it up. uh, Under the article for Will-O-The-Wisps on Wikipedia, it had a list of places where you you can go see them. And one of them was Marfa. I just thought of another example of a, a guy killing a henchman big to make an example. Darth Vader did a lot of that, did he not? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Darth Vader did a whole bunch of that. <laughs> Good job there. So then Ferrier, he tries to take control of the discussion. He's like, well, look, this only serves to underscore my point. If you see something, that's one thing. But to actually understand, you know, figure out why it's happening, that's really our job is to uncover what's going on. Margaret comes in. She has to interrupt the lesson because the students are needed elsewhere. And as they head out, uh, she talks to Farrier. He starts telling her that he doesn't think he can do this. He's like, I don't know if there's much that I can do to help them. You know, they're all like former law enforcement. I'm a cryptozoologist, (laughs) researcher. You know, like, you need to find a qualified instructor. And she's like, look, we're all short-staffed here, you know. Do you want to go teach math or do you want to do this? And he's like, okay, I'm sorry. She's like, look, when we get new staff, we'll put somebody else there. Ferrier's like, anyway, uh, speaking of short staff, where's Hellboy at? You know, we haven't seen him for a long time. And Margaret says she's getting worried about him. But Trevor insists the Hellboy is old enough to make his own mistakes and that he'll come home when he's ready. I can only hope that he's taking care of himself wherever he is. Somewhere in Mexico, Esteban, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we get another great panel there. We cut over to the SSS HQ in Moscow, here in some sort of monitoring room. I love how all this looks. Um, Omi does a good job with giving us, like, the, you know, Omi and Dave Command Stewart with center. this. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just a cool place to have a scene play out. Sure, yeah. Skuratov is there. He wants to impress the Politburo. And then here comes Vivara. She says she's finished with their friend. It turns out he didn't know anything about the Efreet, but I did so enjoy proving it for certain, Vivara says, wiping blood from her hands. And so she mentioned Efreet. This is a powerful type of demon in Islamic mythology. The Efreet are often associated with the underworld and also identified with spirits of the dead and have been compared to the evil Jinai Loci in European culture. So anyway, I love this because she passes the bloody rag to one soldier and then gets her dolly from the other one. <laughs> I thought that was really cute. One one guy's assignment is to hand the dolly to Vivara when she comes That's in her room. That's great. <laughs> Make sure somebody has the dolly. Who has the dolly? Skurtov says they're going to test this noon witch thing, so I did look that up. Polidnitsta is a mythical character common to various Slavic countries. It is called a noon demon. It is often referred to in English as Lady Midday, Noon Wraith, or Noon Witch. She is usually pictured as a young woman dressed in white that roamed fields. She assailed folk working at noon, causing heat strokes and aches in the neck. Sometimes she even caused madness. So I wonder what this noon witch, people whatever were, they're trying to People were getting dehydrated and getting heat stroke, and they were like, it, it must be witches, instead of <laughs> just like drink some water and yeah. get out of the sun. <laughs> You've got heat stroke. <laughs> but Vivara isn't too excited about this noon witch thing. She asks about the Americans. 
Skuratov tells her that they have learned of an operative of the British Special Intelligence that's working in the U.S. And he's trying to get into their secret base, the same one that's in Colorado. Apparently, the Russians have been trying to get in there, too, but they haven't been able to. So they were planning to intercept the British agent when he leaves. They're going to, like, interrogate him. And Vavara says, what fun. But what of our other British friend? What of her dear old Trevor? What is he up to? They tell her they have no info on that. And they bring up the Noon Witch test again. They have a village selected to test it out. They anticipate 50% mortality rate within the first 24 hours. But Vivara is not entertained. That's enough for today, she says. And they get all upset. They're like, they try and get her to continue with the test. They need something to show the Politburo. But Vivara says, no, enough. And skips away. I love the body language on this page. You know, she's like, this is boring. And then she hops off. And then she kind of like skips away. The way that Omin paces all of that, it just really, it's really nice. It gives a lot of character to Vivara. And when she leaves, they get all whispery. It seems like they do know about Broom and Stegner out there. And apparently Moravec is out there too. And he's got his lightning tattoos all souped up now, right? So (laughs) what's going to happen? So they're scheming something. And I was wondering, like, is this the beginning of whatever they're going to do to put her in the jar? Right. Because they're getting tired of her, and eventually that's going to happen, right? So, yeah. you know, I wonder if this is like they're starting to go down that road. I have a feeling we're going to see that. I mean, I'm hoping we're going to see that by the time of this story. Comes. Okay, nice. Back at the BPRD, as Zhang finishes her run, Lindbergh comes out with a file he wants to show her. He's been looking for some leads from her last vision. Also, I, I gotta say, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that she looks like a normal person. Oh yeah, just, just having a run. Just a normal person having a run. <laughs> this is just the depiction of a completely normal fucking person. And I love that so much. Thank you. So in his research, Lindbergh has found out who Moravec is. He doesn't. He still doesn't know who the lady is that's with him. He shows Zhang a picture but she doesn't recognize it. Um, but we know that it's Rahel Rebane. She turns into a wolf or something like that. I think that's the same lady from the other story. Lindbergh also went back to the 1952 file. Hey, we read that story. Yeah. That was back in episode 72. Go back and listen to that one. It's definitely okay. worth checking out on the art alone because it has that Alex Maleev art. And it has Ooh. one of my favorite Hellboy moments of all time. I don't know if you remember when the alligator is going to kill Hellboy. But then the native guy is talking, and they and yeah can, yeah that's a good and one. They have that whole talk about Hellboy the whole time. Hellboy's unconscious and all that. It's just a beautiful scene. It's really good. The artwork is incredible. Incredible. I just love that series, and what makes that episode even better is that we have Mark Tweedo on it. Yeah, I might go back uh. and listen to that episode just because. Uh, well, you know it my was policy a, on that. I will. Yeah. Not, but I hope that uh, the listeners. But do. I'm a fucking dork, so <laughs> I'm gonna go. go that, I'm yeah. gonna go listen to it and relive it and read the issue again. <laughs> anyway, in that story, Hellboy was betrayed by one of their own agents, Robert Amzo, who was really working for Malcolm Frost. Malcolm Frost was that guy that was there when Hellboy was born, and he always thought that he should have been killed. Anyway, at the end of that story, we got this incredible scene. Where, talk about spontaneous combustion, Vavara fries Amzul, and then she shows her devil form to Malcolm Frost. Is that spontaneous, though, or did she combust him? Well, to an onlooker, it might look like spontaneous combustion. Sure. And then as an onlooker is taking a picture, she waves at the Ah, camera. She can't help it. Yeah, so we get to see Mike Norton's version of that Alex Maleev photograph. I'll have to compare those for one of our posts this week. And Zhang is like, I know this girl. I saw her in my vision. 
And Lindbergh says, Broom's note simply identified her as V, but it's unclear whether that's an initial or a code name or even a Roman numeral. You saw her in a vision. Can you elaborate on that? And she's like, I don't think I can. And then she's like, so he did know what I was talking about. And she's like, what else is he hiding from me? So I think that's interesting. Now she's starting to think like, what's up? It seems like everyone's starting to think like, what's up with Broom? What's really going on with him? Right. So we cut back over to Stegner and Broom. We're back in the Yishan Lee art. And they're checking out the base. They see a helicopter coming in. And now that it's getting dark, they're going to go check it out. But they need to be quiet. So they're walking through all quiet-like. And then Stegner trips over some monitoring equipment or something. And then Broom is like, perhaps it belongs to someone else. And then, hold it right there, chummy. (laughs) This is Blues Brothers guy that we saw in the vision, right? Uh, Yeah. So I thought this was interesting. I I know him as Roland Child. But Broom, he says... Oh, I know you from that operation in Warsaw in 44. You were our man on the ground. Critiden, was it? I don't. I have no idea what this is. So, like, is that something we don't know about yet, or... I guess, well, yeah, I guess not. Maybe. I don't know. So, I just thought that was interesting. And then he goes, I go by Roland Child nowadays. So, uh, Roland Child, this I guy... I like this guy's, but the way that he talks is ridiculous, because it's just... <laughs> right. Hold it right there, chummy. I had a late odds that you a lot at the BPID. Didn't even know this place existed, but considering you're out here creeping around in the dark, I'm guessing you're not invited guests either. <laughs> I go by Roland Child nowadays. Thinks all the same. Like, he's very yeah. overly ridiculously dramatic. Like, he's playing a character of himself. I, I love it, though. I'm a big fan. And Broom says, of course, Lady Cynthia's man in Hong Kong. So that's where we know him. He was the British agent in Hellboy and the BPRD 1953 Ghost Moon, which was also done by Brian Chirillo, who we were just talking about. The bad guy looked like me, and they had ox head and horse face down there to get all the souls. And this guy, Roland Childs, he was helping them. He was actually on their side. But then in the end, we learned he was actually gaining information on them to take back to the british uh special uh, oh shit well then I, i'm yeah. reading him completely wrong it would be more like i'll be sure to give her your regards pity our little reunion has to be cut short i'm afraid i must be going i can't risk you two mucking things up for me it would be more like evil <laughs> british villain yeah. guy so like i guess there's several ways you could read it but if he's from you know if he's british right. then i guess that would be don't take this personally old bean you know yeah old bean is kind of a giveaway too that he's probably british i guess don't take this personally, old Bean. It's all in the game. Not everyone can come out on top. And he holds a gun yeah. to Broom. And that's how it ends. That's where we're going to leave off. I apologize to my British uh, <laughs> friends here for the really awful, just terrible goddamn accent. Sorry about that. Yeah. Get carried away. Uh, I know that it's bad. You don't have to tell me. It's terrible. But yes. Uh, so who knows? Yeah. Who knows uh, what this guy is up to? Yeah, I'm really excited. Oh, uh, bad. I'm excited to get to the end of this. And I wonder, Aubrey, if we're going to see that. I don't think we're going to see it yet. I don't know. I have not you read do- ahead, so I don't know. Yeah, me neither. But uh, So you think it's a little ways off, then? I, I think it's still a ways off, but mm. we're getting okay. close to the end of the comics here, guys. You know uh... what I mean? I, we we got some more stuff we can do after that. But wow, you know, this is incredible. Um, and it's so cool to be reading stuff that I haven't done before. So... I'm really excited. I'm really enjoying the story. I'm enjoying all the 1950s characters. This was a great episode. Uh, I thought this was a great discussion. So I'm excited to hear what you all think and our listener feedback. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. Yes, say all the things. All right, everybody. Have you guys been enjoying the 1950s stories? Send us a hey, you damn guys at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. 
and follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find all of our resources on our Podbean website, our Facebook About section, and our link trees on Instagram and Twitter. As always, a special thank you to Paul from Gotterhorn for the uh, theme music. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you, Mark, for helping John with the reading order, and thank you, John, for doing all your wonderful editing, and thank you, Danielle, for your wonderful British accent. No, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> you can find the podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from. And, uh, you know, uh, while you're downloading the episode, why don't you uh, um, open it up and rate us, give us a five stars if you like. Do it. Uh, that would be Not very if you like, just do it. Yeah, it's like Uber. Yes, if, just do it. Again, like anything less than five stars means you fucking hate it. So if you're going to yeah. do it, make it five stars just or just don't do it. No, do it. <laughs> That's do the it. only option. Do all it right, and do right. five stars. Next week, we are finishing up Hellboy and the BPRD 1956 issues four through five. But we're also reading Hellboy versus Lobster Johnson, the Ring of Death oh, and shit. Damn Mexico Way. So you know what to do. Keep those trades out. Keep the back issues opened and uh, join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm an old bean. <laughs> and I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, now, what fun are we having here today? Uh. <laughs>